This is Mornings with Simi. You know, on average, most years, this right about this time, we would be talking about forest fires, right? The impact here in BC. It's been relatively quiet on that front, thank goodness. Uh, but yesterday, we also heard how the Federal Ministry of Natural Resources has made a funding announcement to help combat wildfires, right? That normally very familiar problem that we have here. To explain more, our Nikki Reitmeyer spoke to Lori Daniels, Professor of Forest Ecology at UBC. So um, the announcement yesterday was an investment of $5 million to develop a wildfire research network um, to address the pressing wildfire and forest and community impacts across Canada. So what exactly does that mean? What exactly will this research be looking at? Well, as we know, in the last few years, we've seen extreme wildfires um, across the country. So Many will remember the impacts of the 2016 fire um, up in Fort McMurray, which caused the emergency evacuation of almost 90,000 people. Here in British Columbia, those big fire seasons in 2017 and 2018, each year we burned more than a million hectares of forest, eclipsing the impacts of forest fires in the past. What we're seeing is the combination of climate change and land use and forestry changes um, impacting the way that fires are functioning on our landscapes. They're becoming larger and more intense and much more difficult to manage and control. And of course, our communities are also expanding and we're expanding into these fire-prone forests, making our homes and lives and livelihoods and communities vulnerable to fire. So our strategic network aims to redirect research on fire to address three important issues. One is to better understand under changed climate and under altered forests how fire behavior works. So fundamental research will be done connecting fire weather to the condition of the forest to better understand how fire is functioning, what its impacts are on the vegetation, and what that means for those of us who rely on those landscapes for water and for timber and for recreation and for spiritual and other cultural values. So that's our first area. The second area that we're focusing on is trying to understand the relationship between fire and the forest so that we can come up with more effective forest management strategies. Some of that can be proactive. We can figure out where there are vulnerable forests in the landscape or where we have built up a fuels from things like mountain pine beetle outbreak or from fire suppression that has been so effective in many parts of the landscape. But the unintended consequence is that there's more trees that are dense and more fuels building up, making um, those forests more burnable. So we want to understand those interactions and begin to think differently um, how to transform our forest management and our ecosystem management to make it more resilient to wildfire. And then the third area is to use modern technologies to upgrade and update the way that we manage wildfires themselves. So thinking about ways that we can be very innovative and improve on the detection, the management, and the suppression of fires to reduce, again, the impacts on communities especially. So looking at those fires that that put homes and lives and human health at risk and really come up with um, strategies that are aggressive and successful at nipping those fires in the bud. You know, I got to say, it sounds like a really well thought out, holistic, all encompassing plan. 
Um, thank you for noticing. Um, that was our aim. We wanted to be comprehensive to address these very complex issues. We also know for, for the last four decades, funding and wildfire research has actually been declining. So this $5 million grant to create this network is um, a really important refresh so that we can um, tackle these really pressing issues and make sure that the best available science is guiding forest and fire management um, and helping us to understand how fires are impacting our ecosystems and communities. To really address that kind of broad scope, we have also um, put together an amazing team that includes fire researchers at universities across Canada. So there's representation from British Columbia and Alberta and Ontario and Quebec with collaborative agencies from coast to coast to coast and also communities um, collaborating with us and other fire management agencies. So we've tried to have a very broad scope and a very collaborative approach so that we can address um, these important issues. That is really fascinating stuff. Well, I have just one final question for you, uh, and that is if we can look ahead to what the forest fire season could be like here in British Columbia. Do you have any predictions? Do you have any uh, idea of what we can expect here? Ah, uh, the crystal ball. <laughs> um, I, uh, we have been lucky so far this year. We've had a fairly low number of fires, and the total area burned is below the long-term average for this point in the summer. So we've off to a slow start. But I caution because we were off to a slow start in 2018 as well. And with the heat of the summer in late July and into August, which is when our major fire season actually happens in most of of the area of British Columbia. Remember in 2018, it was the third week in July when the intense heat arrived and uh, we ended up burning 1.3 million hectares concentrated in the north but with wildfires all across the province. So I will not make a prediction about this summer um, based on our experiences up until now, the the end of June, but I will say that um, we all need to be very um, vigilant when we're out in the forest, when we're recreating, when we're out in remote areas, when we're traveling across our landscapes to make sure that we're not accidentally starting fires. And the other thing that we can all be doing when, you know, all of us in British Columbia live in fire-prone environments, even here in the wet, rainy coast, um, in the heat of the summer, our forests around us are very um, capable of burning and having impacts on our homes and communities. And so taking those steps towards fire smart and um, preparing our homes and yards by cleaning up burnable debris that might be on our roof or in our gutters or under our decks or surrounding our homes would be great activities that we could be doing under this cool, wet conditions. So when it's hot and dry, we're ready. That's Lori Daniels, Professor of Forest Ecology at UBC. This is Mornings with Simi. So down in the United States, we heard in the last week that the Trump administration had suspended uh, the processing of all visas, and that includes the very coveted H-1B visas. These are the highly skilled workers that are allowed to come to the United States. Tech companies love the H-1B visa, except nothing's happening with that in the U.S. So could that benefit Canada's tech sector. Well, according to experts here, we definitely need to attract more highly skilled labor to this country. Could this be our chance? Well, we wanted to talk more about that. Joining us now is Ian Klugman, the CEO of Communitech. They are based in Kitchener, Ontario. Ian, thanks so much for being here. 
Thanks for having me. Tell me a bit about Communitech. What do you do? Uh, we're an organization that works with about uh, 1,400 tech companies, small, medium, and large. Um, been around for about 20 years or so. Okay. So then this does this sound like good news to you out of the United States? Well, you know, it sounds like great news because, um, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to riff off the Statue of Liberty, you know, give us your qualified, your talent, if you're entrepreneurial, because absolutely we need uh, great talent. And I think this just opens up tremendous opportunity for us. But will those same candidates choose Canada? Can companies pivot and say, listen, we can be just as attractive? You know, I really think so. I think that there's a couple of factors in this, one of which is we've, uh, we've had such significant growth in um, our tech industry in the last 10 years in Vancouver and Toronto, Waterloo region, you know, right across the country. But now we've got some great companies that are global brands, companies like Shopify. We've got some amazing startups and scale-ups. So we actually have a really broad cross-section of, uh, of great companies to work for. I think the other thing that plays in our favor is the fact that, you know, a lot of what has happened in the Valley, you know, a lot of the sort of bad behavior by companies and individuals, Canada's brand is very much about tech for good. It's very much about, you know, the different set of values. I think people used to criticize us for being polite and saying sorry all the time, and now those things are actually things that really weigh in our favor. So is, have companies already started ramping up to try to take advantage of this? Yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's a fair amount of activity, uh, both with, with recruiters and with, uh, with online uh, social media, with people sending powerful signals saying, you know, we would love to talk to you about, uh, about the great jobs in Canada. So Ian, if there's, like, there's lots of obviously Canadian-grown tech companies too, but what about some of those big American companies that, that also have kind of offices here in Canada? Would they be expected to try to expand some of those offices now? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, not, not abs- you know, absolutely the big, the big uh, foreign multinationals like like Google um, would, would absolutely be thinking about uh, how to attract uh, some of this talent that's going to come on the market. Okay, so this sounds like a, a big opportunity for Canada's tech industry then, right? Because this, this isn't going to last forever. You know, things are going to change in the U.S. Yeah, no, I mean, this is a window. I think that, uh, you know, these windows open and close. And uh, I think what we need to do is, is send, you know, a loud uh, and welcoming message to say, you know, this is a, this is a, a great place to be. This is a great place to live. Um, this is a great country. Um, and we've got some fantastic opportunities, both at homegrown Canadian companies and foreign multinationals. So is that going to be happening or has that work already started? That work's already started. There's already um, uh, conversations that are happening and recruiters are working. Um, messages are being sent. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's people are being, you know, in typically Canadian fashion, aggressive without being too aggressive. <laughs> Typical Canadian fashion. Uh, you know, it used to be that, you know, it was very, very tough for the market to try to recruit that high-tech labor talent in. Is Has that become easier at all? If all the options aren't available, does it become a little bit easier to attract that talent? It has. And I think there's really, it goes back to those sort of two factors, one of which is we've got some great companies that people want to work for. I think the second is, you know, people either run to something or they run away from something. And, you know, there's a fair number of people who have not been comfortable in America in the last four years, and they have chosen to, to, 
to run away from what's happening in America. Um, and, and it's been to our benefit. I mean, you know, it's not just, you know, expat Canadians that we would love to have come home from, uh, from the Valley and elsewhere in America, but it's all the other people who are on the H-1B visas that we would love to say, you know, this is a pretty cool place right now. And in a world where, you know, um, in a world where, where you know, there's been some bad behavior, this, this is a country that has a different set of values. You know, we trust our sort of our true north and, and, and our values as Canadians uh, are, are different. And, and I think that's reflected in the companies and I think that's reflected in the opportunities in this country. Is there a particular province that benefits more from this than another? I mean, you're based in Kitchener. We know BC has a pretty good tech industry, too. Uh, does one province benefit over another here? You know, I, I, I would have answered that differently pre-COVID than I would now. I would say right now, because of the fact that, you know, proximity has become really quite optional for all intents and purposes, um, I would say that there's an opportunity across the country. Uh, and I think the beauty of, of Canada is we've got such a great you know, set of choices from, you know, Atlantic Canada all the way through to BC. We've got great uh, small cities, we've got oceans, we've got great big cities. You know, really, there's, there's such a diversity of choice that's available for, for people. And of course, with you know, the sort of notion that proximity is optional, you know, people can pretty much live and work in different places or wherever they want. Right. So we'll wait and see what happens. Ian, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. That's Ian Klugman, CEO of Communitech. They're based in Kitchener, Ontario, uh, working within the tech industry there. And it sounds like a lot of recruiters in those industries, a lot of companies are hard at work already trying to recruit a lot of that talent that would have normally gone to the United States. But the Trump administration has suspended the coveted H-1B visa. That is for the highly skilled workers and many people hoping that they will then turn their attention to Canada, those workers, and come here instead. That's going to be a very popular idea. It'd be interesting to watch the tech industry over the next couple of years. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, there are a lot of different ways to track COVID-19, find out where it was and when it was there and how it's moving. But mostly those ways rely on asking people questions. But one of the most effective ways of tracking the virus doesn't need that at all. Don't even need to talk to people who had COVID-19. All you need to do is check the sewage. Yeah, I know, it sounds gross, but wait till you hear about how effective this is. Joining us now is Dr. Natalie Pristajecki, environmental microbiologist with the BC Centre for Disease Control. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. My pleasure. I find this fascinating. Tell me, how effective is this, testing the sewage? Well, there's been a number of studies around the world that have shown that, in fact, you can potentially find SARS-CoV-2, the the virus that causes COVID-19, um, in the wastewater before it's actually found in um, by testing people. Uh, so this could be that there's some spread happening before we actually get our first positive case, in which case you could see that, um, you could predict that there was going to be an outbreak. So this, this happened in Italy, right? Didn't they do this and they found out that it was kind of spreading in the community weeks before they actually had their first official case? Yeah, so they, um, this recently came out in, uh, in last weekend, actually, that they had frozen wastewater from, from 2019, and they were actually able to see that, in fact, they could find it in the wastewater before they actually had any cases. Now, Dr. Prisajeki, this sounds like it's one of those things where it's gross, but somebody has to do it. Um, 
Yeah, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's not unusual. We do all sorts of work with wastewater, um, and that it's not unusual to do microbiology on wastewater. Interesting. So is this more effective, do you think, than asking people where they've been and what they've been doing? I, I think it's part of a toolkit. I think that you absolutely still need to ask people where they've been and what they've done, but this allows you to sort of sample the entire population and get a sense of how much transmission there might be in the community, or it could tell you that there's an increasing trend or a decreasing trend, or, for example, in a community that's not known to have any COVID cases, you could confirm that that is true, or you could predict that maybe an outbreak is about to occur. What I will say is that this method is very much still in development, and it's been very much these preliminary studies um, sort of that have shown that this is a possible tool, but we still need to do validations to demonstrate that this could be part of the toolkit for, for the second wave. Right. Have we been testing this or using this at all here in BC? Well, we've been working with Metro Vancouver to validate the method, to ensure that the method that we use for other types of viruses, so we've been doing this work with them on norovirus or rotavirus, uh, we want to make sure that that method works for for COVID-19. So we've been really focused on the validation and trying to improve the method. Um, but we have been testing wastewater locally here, and we haven't found anything yet. Um, and that's not surprising. We have a pretty low prevalence in the lower mainland. Um, and so we just want to have the tool ready for uh, when it's needed or to deploy it elsewhere as outbreaks occur. But it sounds like what you're saying, though, if we can do this well and do it right, is this something that we would do regularly to find out, as you said, if an outbreak is about to occur? Yeah, I think that there's some efforts across Canada and around the world to set up such a surveillance system. Uh, though really what's needed is the, the, the pilot studies to show um, how to use the data, how to interpret it, and how much noise there will be in the, in the signal. What does that mean? Um, we don't know how, how stable the signal is or if it's going to be up and down all over the, time, all over the place. So we just really need to start doing uh, routine testing to understand uh, what that uh, signal will look like. So you mean like how strong is that virus or what strain is that virus? Um, how, I would say how strong it is. How, you know, is there a baseline that we see in the community and how quickly can we see an increase? And the other thing that's quite you know, important is the population served by a wastewater plant. So if you have a plant that serves a million people, and only five people are ill, well, there's a lot of dilution there, a lot of un, not like well people whose wastewater is contributing. But if you have a smaller population, uh, you could actually see the signal, more, a stronger signal right. earlier. I also wonder, too, if you have a lot of people and that one sewage treatment plant, uh, how can you figure out where the outbreak actually is? Well, I think that it's more to tell you that something's happening in the community and that perhaps increased measures are needed to prevent transmission. It's not necessarily to go back and pinpoint where, who, who is contributing that, uh, to that outbreak. Do you think COVID-19 has also led us to kind of make a leap forward in terms of research? Oh, absolutely. I think that the research community here in British Columbia and across Canada is doing an excellent job. And there's been very a very diverse interest in the types of research around COVID-19, everything from the societal impacts to mental health impacts to things like this to studying COVID-19 in wastewater. I think that um, what's been really great is that the provincial and federal governments, their funding agencies have really supported the science to really understand this virus. So are we, we're doing this right now. We're trying to see how well this could work. Absolutely, yeah. We're in the validation phase, um, and then we'll be going into a piloting phase. All right, we'll see what happens. Thanks so much for your time. 
Okay, great. Thanks very much. That is Dr. Natalie Pristajecki, environmental microbiologist with the BC Center for Disease Control's Public Health Laboratory, also a clinical assistant professor at UBC. I find it fascinating. I know the headline is like, every it's out there, but I don't know how many people actually click on it when they see that it involves sewage. Uh, but it's really fascinating what they're doing. I read the original story about Italy that Dr. Pristajecki had just referenced there. And that is that they found out that when they tested uh, frozen sewage, essentially from late 2019, like October, November 2019, they found COVID-19 in the system, like in the sewage system that had been around at that time, that would be weeks, weeks, even a couple of months before they had their first official case in Italy. It just hadn't been kind of named and tracked yet at that point. So you can see how that would be a very valuable tool moving forward. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it's a huge economic engine for BC. It's been shut down for months now, but phase three means that we will start to see the film and television industry here in BC start to reopen. So what does that mean? What does it look like? Let's find out. Prem Gill joins us now, CEO of Creative BC. Good morning, Prem. Hi, Simi. So this sounds like you've been waiting for this for a long time, but what does it mean exactly? How quickly will the industry get ramped back up? Yeah, so the industry, a few weeks ago, WorkSafe BC put out some protocols, and then yesterday we launched safety guidelines very specific to the industry that employers and productions can now start to build their safety plans on. So with Phase 3, it's now the signal that all types of production can get into restart mode, so that means prepping for pre-production, um, getting ready to bring back some of those larger shows. We've had indication from... Some of the larger studios like Warner Brothers that they're already uh, thinking about prep and hope to have their shows back probably early in the fall time period. So things are now going to start moving along and hopefully getting people back to work. Does that mean that we need the border open? Like, does the border have to open for this to really start up? The industry has indicated that the border, the quarantine guidelines are part of the production planning process. So a lot of you know, 80 to 90% of the production crews are actually based in BC already, and a lot of the talent, uh, specifically the on-camera talent, if they're coming up, they'll be abiding by the quarantine rules as they're currently set, and that's just going to be part of the production planning process right now. So it's really about getting people back in a safe way, ensuring that they feel healthy in the workplace and safe, and that's what everybody's working towards right now, knowing that it'll look completely different than it did three yeah. months ago. But I know you talk to a lot of people in Hollywood. What is BC? BC's reputation when, like right now in terms of where we are at with the virus? There's, uh, I mean, I think everybody's been watching, obviously, all over North America and paying particular attention to BC and how the virus has been managed, how we as a community have reacted. So I think that sits very positively. And generally, we've always had a very strong reputation, obviously, being one of the top destinations for film and television production in North America. It is part of everything that we offer here, and now it includes, um, you know, how the province and the communities here have managed and worked with uh, this virus that we're all living with. So we're this fall, we can expect to start seeing more of those productions back on the streets, perhaps? 
Yeah, that is our hope that um, over the next month or so period that uh, guidelines will be developed by production and by show and that people will get up and running and uh, we'll have some new content for all of us to yeah. be checking out uh, into the new year. No kidding, right? New content is that. That was the irony of all this, wasn't it? Like so much content was being consumed, but no, not a lot of new content was being produced. Yeah, fortunately, there's probably a lot that has been uh, pre has been done and, and was in post production and and you know our animation industry here has been very active through the COVID period. They all started working at home. Uh, we are one of the you know lead destinations in the world for animation that a lot of people don't uh, realize because we're not on the streets in the same way as physical production. Right. But um, yeah, you know, I think British Columbia and the talent and the crews here and all of our infrastructure, et cetera, will continue to lead globally. Do you, is it possible that some per- more productions would move up to Canada? Do you think because some of those hot spots in the states are are you know also film centers? Yeah, I mean, at this point, you know, we're we're really focused on getting a lot of those shows that were that paused and shut down pre, you know, or as COVID was sort of uh, rolling out. Mm. Um, And, yeah, I mean, I think we've always been, uh, there's always inquiries as to, you know, space and crew availability in BC. So I don't see that changing. You know, again, we don't know what's happening elsewhere and in other jurisdictions and the protocols that they're putting in place, knowing that this is how we're going to work now for a while. For a while. So indefinitely, you think all these protocols, the quarantining when they arrive here, all that's going to stay in place? Yeah, I mean, I think based on what we're hearing from the public health officer and, um, you know, the orders from various levels of government that until there is a vaccine or treatment, there will be some form of protocols that we're all in all aspects of our lives and industries will be following. And the great thing about this sector is that it's extremely nimble. It's creative. I mean, you know, you've worked in television. Mm -hmm. We figure out solutions and we get on with the show and, uh work really hard to and uh, we already have to follow a lot of protocols and safety rules as it is in film and television production and this will just be another aspect of it all right well thanks so much for joining us thank you simi prem gill ceo of creative bc uh, looking after all the creative industries in this province and they are getting ready to go you heard them a couple months from now like in the early fall they're already doing pre-production work but it sounds like you will once again start seeing those Big white trucks and trailers on the streets as the industry returns to actual active production here. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. She could see that I was bleeding from my parents' self-harm. You would assume that she would ask if you're okay. or But right away she said, you know, Mona, get up. Stop being dramatic. Whoa, that is Mona Wang, the UBCO nursing student, speaking yesterday on the Linda Steele Show. And you have by now, undoubtedly, seen the horrible video of what happened to her when Kelowna RCMP were asked to do a mental wellness check on her. I don't know in what universe a mental wellness check involves dragging someone down the hall, pulling them up by the hair, stepping on their head when they're lying on the floor and they just kind of look up. It is a shockingly cruel video. And so many questions are being raised by it now, including what do you expect? Uh, How do you expect to help people who have mental health issues when they call the police, ask for help, and that's 
what actually happens. Well, the Canadian Mental Health Association of BC is weighing in on this, calling for change after seeing that video as well. We wanted to talk more about this, so we're joined now by the uh, CMHA BC CEO, Johnny Morris. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Simi. Thank you. Johnny, when did you, what did you think when you saw that video? Um, I, I, I shared the reaction, I think, of, of many viewers of that video, and, um, and, and I'm, I'm thankful that it is being duly investigated by the RCMP there. Um, it's absolutely uh, what you would not want to see um, in the context of, of um, anyone responding to a, a mental wellness check. Um, it, it's absolutely, I think, unclear um, as to the purpose or the rationale or the, or the reasoning uh, behind what's taking place um, in that particular interaction, Simi. Right. We know that quite often that does happen, that police get called for a mental wellness check to see what's happening. Do police, in your opinion, have enough training to do that? I think there are um, lots of lots of incidents where police attend with the right training, and 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 those incidents are, are diffused. Um, and there are the occasions where we see what happened in Kelowna, or um, there's tragically a, a more fatal outcome. Um, the point we're making is that the pendulum has swung too far, where we are um, overly relying upon. Um, a first responder group, the police, right. to um, do mental health and social care work. Yeah, that's what I was wondering too. Is that unfair to police? You're right, because they don't have that necessarily enough training to do that. So why don't we have other people to do this when we know that there's probably a lot of phone calls dealing with situations like that? Yeah, I, I think I think it's a result of, of many decades of, of systemically underfunding mental health and addictions care. Um, and other jurisdictions, and this is what we point to, have really seized the opportunity to make sure that a mental health emergency gets an emergency health response. Um, Sweden, one of the first jurisdictions in the world to actually create a dedicated mental health paramedic or ambulance team. And, and the data is pointing to the fact that they haven't had to rely on police and they've been able to satisfactorily resolve so many of the cases that they've been able to attend. It's a good example of a health response responding to a mental health emergency. Right, and we know this is a huge issue here. The Vancouver police have often talked about this, haven't they, about when they deal with a lot of issues on the downtown east side in particular, they're really dealing with mental health issues. That's right. I mean, the, the stats that VPD have collected show that, that there's a significant number of their calls that are mental health or social care related. Um, and that's why a few years ago when VPD released their mental health strategy, which calls for a proportionate response to people in mental distress, um, we commented at the time as, as, as that's an example of a police force strategically planning different ways to respond to this, hopefully in partnership with the, with the health system. So do you think this is a wake-up call then to say we need to rethink how we approach these cases? It's absolutely a wake-up call. And, and as we note, uh, racism, um, it's systemic injustice, all compounds the lead-up to a crisis interaction like this. Um, the moral imperative here, Simi, is for us to collectively change how we do this. We all have to get better at responding to people in distress. I think, Johnny, what really bothers people when they watch that video is just that initial reaction is that if somebody's calling for a wellness check, is not your first question going to be, hey, what's going on? How are you? Not, I'm going to handcuff you and put you on the floor. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of points here. Um, there's a, a key question, like for a wellness check, should armed police 
be during the wellness check. And, and we, of course, recognize in communities, sometimes the only resource available um, is police. And that speaks to that broader resourcing issue, particularly in rural remote communities. Um, but absolutely, um, that, that, that starting interface, um, if, you, if you're a police officer and you know or you don't know what you're about to experience, when you've got a wellness check, um, starting in from a de-escalating or a conflict resolution or a, or a calm place is critical. And, and we recognize that there are, are many police officers, particularly um, specially trained mental health police officers in the province that do just that. Um, they, they get the person to care or they respond effectively. What we're alarmed by is, is the number of, of occasions where that does not happen and, um, and where it can lead to very, very devastating outcomes. Right. I feel like we've talked about this for a long time, though, because this was another issue in the Robert Jakansky case as mm-hmm. well, right, where de-escalation and calmness would have worked a lot better. It does, has nothing improved? Um, well, as, as we know, I think, and you're totally right, Simi, I mean, back to the Braidwood Commission here in British Columbia and, and, and the questions around use of force or use of tasers, I mean, this has been a conversation that we at CMHA have, have commented on for four years. Um, we hope um, particularly that the tipping point has come, particularly given that we have a Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions here in the province that can strategically set some of the direction that we need to see here. Um, we don't need to talk about it anymore. We need to act. And, and I think there's the resources. Uh, there's the evidence of good examples around the world. Um, they're, they're with the will and, and the time and the resources, change can really happen where the right response to someone in distress is provided immediately. Oh, we would hope so. Uh, Johnny, thanks for your time on this today. Simi, thanks for your questions and thanks for covering this important story. Thank you. That is Johnny Morris, the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association of BC. She punched me several times and caused you know, swelling and bruising and burst blood vessels to my face. So that was Mona Wang speaking on the Linda Steele show yesterday. If you haven't seen the video, I mean, it's it's pretty disturbing. We talked earlier with the Canadian Mental Health Association about the impact of this. Uh, joining us now is the head of the Students' Union at UBC Okanagan. It's Ali Pustazade. Ali, thank you very much for being here. Of course. Good morning. How are you? Good, thank you. So what is the, what, what is the Students' Union calling for here? We're calling for for some some major change to be made. I think that uh, you know we we obviously can't comment on an ongoing case, but but we can comment on that video, and it's pretty clear what's happening in that video, and and it shows a systemic issue across Canada with wellness checks and how they're being performed and and who's performing them. And is this something that the university or the students union has gotten involved with before, or did the video make you think we we need to get involved? Well, that's actually one of the major issues that we saw was that we weren't even made aware of this incident prior to that video being released. And we're genuinely shocked that it took that video to be released for for there to be any meaningful action from from the RCMP and any notification to be made to, to us. And what have you been hearing from other students on the campus about this? Uh, students are, are very clearly outraged. They they see one of their classmates, and we're a very tight-knit community here at UBC Okanagan. There's 12,000 of us. Uh, and, you know, it's pretty hard to, to walk across campus and not see somebody you know. And and it, it is hurtful to see one of our classmates. Uh, you have to endure something like that, uh, especially when we see, you know, across Canada, these wellness checks going horribly wrong, leading to the death of individuals who uh, really just are at a time when they need help. 
uh, and it shows a, a clear issue with the way that they're being carried out right now. And we know that crunch time at university can be very stressful for students. Mental health is, of course, always topical there. So what is your message then to authorities? And have you told the administrators at UBCO this as well? Yeah, we're we're working with the administration to try and come to a, a, a you know a conclusion where this doesn't happen again. And and I think that it's important to acknowledge that mental health is one of the major issues facing students. We uh, are not just going through the the you know uh, normal stresses of being an ordinary citizen, but you have uh, very high financial costs. Uh, you're going through. Uh, a very difficult education. We're very isolated here at the UBC Okanagan campus, a little bit split off from the city. So it's a it's a difficult life, and and I mean uh, everybody signs on to it, but that doesn't mean that there's no support, and there shouldn't be support from the university and from the government to ensure that you know everybody is is uh, living a good life. All right, Ali, thank you very much for your time. Of course, thank you. That is Ali Pustazade from UBC Okanagan, the head of the Students' Union there, calling for change following the allegations that uh, what you saw there, the Kelowna RCMP officer and the allegations that she mistreated a university student during that wellness check. I mean, the video says an awful lot, doesn't it? So there's more to come on that story for sure. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, we are entering phase three of our economic recovery plan here in BC. That's good news for tourism, of course. But what does it mean for British Columbians in general? Let's get more details on that. Joining us now is Premier John Horgan. Thanks so much for being here this morning. Good morning, Simi. So what does this mean for British Columbians? Does it mean that you're saying, hey, it's okay to travel in BC now? Well, what Dr. Henry and I said yesterday as we we moved to phase three of our our restart plan was we said to British Columbians, because of the good work of everyone in every corner of the province, we've seen a significant decline in COVID cases. But COVID's not left British Columbia. We still need to maintain physical distance. We still need to uh, take the direction uh, we've been given, uh, wash our hands. If we can't avoid uh, staying a distance from people, it's a good idea to wear a mask. Uh, But... Because of the success we've had, it's uh, as the summer starts to progress, people are free to travel uh, for what we call discretionary travel, or basically holidays. And and I'm I'm pretty excited about that. I think most British Columbians are as well. But it is a direct result of the hard work that we've put in. And we, when we looked south of the border to Washington, Oregon, California, Nevada, Texas, they've seen an explosion of new cases because they've been reckless in how they've opened up. And I'd like to think. Uh, that we've been uh, collectively as British Columbians going at this in the right way. And uh, hopefully the summer will go through and we'll keep those cases low. Let's talk about one of the other big topics this week, uh, the idea of temporary layoff protection for businesses. It has been very important to them to not have to permanently lay off staff and pay out severance. Will that be extended? Well, I'm meeting with uh, a, a host of groups this morning, uh, the BC Business Council, the Chamber of BC Chamber, Uh, boards of trade from Surrey and Vancouver, as well as others that are part of our economic recovery task force, including the BC Federation of Labor. And as we've had discussions around this over the past number of weeks, uh, we did extend uh, the uh, employment standards limit uh, a few weeks ago, a month and a half ago. Uh, And we have within our act, unlike any other act in the country, a provision for companies to ask for a variance. So the Minister of Labor wrote to business groups and said, this is the best way forward uh, we want to see more businesses opening up. Uh, that's as we go to phase three. That's that's what that all means. But uh, effective July 8th or 9th, uh, the extension that we initially granted will have come to an end. And many businesses are concerned about that. I heard that loudly and clearly, and I'm going to be talking to them today. But uh, I also read a piece uh, in the 
a web uh, on the web page to Tai about a hotel in Vancouver that wants to lay off all of their employees uh, and not provide severance. This is all about protecting the rights of workers who have given their toil to companies for many years in some cases. They need to have their lawful severance protected. That's the objective here, to find that balance. And I'm pretty confident we can. But there are going to be companies that abuse this, and there are going to be companies that desperately need the extension. So we're going to talk it through today, and hopefully we'll come up with a solution. Would you prefer, then, that companies apply for that variance instead? Well, that was what we suggested, and they responded uh, quite viscerally to that, I have to say. And uh, so, uh, you know, I heard that, and I got the letter on Monday. We had a a scheduled meeting for this morning. So I, I made it clear in the legislature that uh, I understand that the, the variance approach was not supported by many. And so we're going to have more discussion today. And, and if we can't find a way forward, uh, certainly we'll grant the extension. But I want to, your listeners to understand that the very people that are saying we don't want to abuse severance rights, uh, a hotel in Vancouver with hundreds of employees is saying you're all fired and I don't owe you anything because of COVID. So there are challenges here, as there have been from the beginning. And our job as government is to, uh, you know, put our put our head down and work through this. And that's what I plan to do. Let's talk about the financial challenges here as well. We heard Finance Minister Carol James saying yesterday that it looks like we're going to be in deficit for the next three years, including this year. That would be four. Are you worried about BC's financial future? I'm worried about the world's financial future, Simi, and, and I think that uh, British Columbia was in a pretty good spot, what now seems a thousand years ago, back in February, when we tabled our third balanced budget with a plan going forward next year and the year after for more balanced budgets. Uh, COVID-19 hit not just us, but the entire world, and the economy tanked. That's going to have impacts on everyone, on international trade, on how we uh, continue to be a dominant player in it, things like uh, uh, tech, like film. Uh, I'm very excited that phase three will allow the film industry to get back and up and running here in BC. That's going to create more economic opportunity. But for uh, March, April, May, now into June and probably into July, many parts of the economy are going at half speed at best. So that's going to have an impact on our revenue. That's going to, more importantly, it's going to have an impact on people. And as I said yesterday, whether you sign the check or cash the check, people are the economy and we need to make sure we're protecting businesses, protecting workers as we all try and get through this. But there are going to be some difficult times ahead. But the whole uh, the the basic contention of government is uh, you save during the good times and you spend during the bad times. And, And we have bad times ahead, not just in B.C., not just in Canada, but globally. And I think British Columbians are well placed to manage that. Is that so that's four years of planning for deficits. Is that a kind of a glass half empty scenario? Are you hoping it would end sooner than that? It's it's the it's the, uh, the the menu we have, Simi. If I could put it that way, uh, we we've been dealt these cards, and we're going to do the best we can with it. But the good news is that everyone's playing the same game. It's uh, the imp- Washington State, the impact in uh, in the UK and in Europe, the impact in Asia is the same as it is here. And collectively, uh, the international economy has to find a way forward. The good news about that is that I've been talking to. Uh, the tech sector, the clean tech sector, agriculture, uh, small businesses. And it's the innovation of the people of B.C. that put us in a strong position before COVID. And it's going to be that innovation that takes us through this. Uh, with every challenge is new opportunity. And that's what entrepreneurs do. They see, okay, what do we need now? So the transition for some companies to developing uh, PPE, uh, personal protective equipment, has led to economic, uh, an ec- economic spike for some manufacturers that their traditional products 
were no longer required in the market for the past few months. So innovators will innovate, our economy will grow, and uh, I'm excited about that because British Columbians have a strong, uh, strong uh, skills system, so our K-12 system is strong, our post-secondary institutions are strong, uh, so we're going to be training the next generation of workers, and that will include care aides. Obviously, we've learned through this that our long-term care facilities need more people to provide services for seniors in their latter years. So there's opportunity around every corner. What we need to do is harness that. Uh, let me ask you as well, a couple of the things. One, the Hub City bid for the NHL. Yeah. We're hearing in the last 24 hours it's in trouble. What's going on? Well, I think uh, the, the whole concept of restarting sports uh, is in trouble I, because of what's happening in the United States, largely. Uh, I think the NHL is now looking to Vancouver and Edmonton, hopefully, because, uh, you know, Las Vegas, uh, first of all, I don't know if I'd want to go to Las Vegas in August and play hockey because of the temperatures, but the number of cases in Nevada is going up thousands a day, and, and that's not the type of place that I think NHL players and their teams want to go and finish off the season. So I think Vancouver and Edmonton are well-placed because of our low uh, case counts and the, and, the, and the things that British Columbians and Albertans have done to keep the, the curve down. But uh, we cannot uh, relax our rules here. And we've made that clear to the NHL. Uh, we're ha- happy to have you come, but this is, the, this is the, the landscape you have to operate in. And if that doesn't work for them, then I wish them well. And uh, as a huge hockey fan, I'd love to see hockey games resume. But more important uh, to me and to British Columbians is the well-being of our, our people. And uh, that's our highest priority. I also have to ask you, because I had a lot of emails from people this morning when they heard you were going to be on the show, wanting me to ask you about the Surrey police transition People in yep. Surrey not happy with how that's going. They want the provincial government to step in and do something. What is your response to them? Well, we have, we've been stepping in and doing something. But the duly elected council of, the, of Surrey has suggested that the best course of action for public safety is a transition to a municipal force, not unlike what we have in West Vancouver, North Vancouver, West Vancouver and, and Vancouver. So uh, we listened to the elected representatives there. We enabled them to bring forward their suggestions. We brought in uh, prominent uh, people like Wally Opal, former attorney general, uh, did a a, a commission on policing in British Columbia to help put in place the framework for a transition. There are people that want to keep the RCMP. There are people who want to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a challenge, and we're trying to manage it as best we can. Uh, Mike Farnworth is tasked with the file, and uh, you can't find a more level-headed guy than Mike. He's trying to strike that balance to meet the needs of all, uh, all of the people in Surrey. Uh, top priority is public safety, and uh, if we can get through that and meet the needs of the majority of people, that's, uh, I'm, I'm going to say that's just, uh, a win for us. For, okay, so you, you'll still be keeping an eye on it, though? Oh, absolutely. We're, every day, Simi. I mean, <laughs> this is uh, a pandemic doesn't stop these issues, and, and one of the, the challenges is that you want to focus on the, the, the crisis at hand, but there's also the, what I would characterize now as the everyday issues, like the desire for the Council of Surrey uh, to move to a different policing model. Uh, we heard them. We've assisted them. We've tried to make it as, uh, uh, as comprehensive a review and as inclusive a review as we can. Uh, and, and that, uh, I believe, is allowing that debate to take place. And if the people of Surrey want a different outcome, law enforcement is the responsibility at the end of the day uh, of the municipal government. If they don't like the government they've got, uh, the polls is the place to go. All right. Thank you very much for your time this morning. Thanks, Simi. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. Right now, let's talk about phase three reopening. It means that British Columbians can plan that travel this summer 
within British Columbia. So what does that mean for hotels out there? I'm sure some of them are busy already. Joining us now is Ingrid Jarrett, CEO and President of the BC Hotel Association. Ingrid, thanks for being here. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. This must be great news for hotels, that official go-ahead. Oh my goodness. I think all of us have been uh, looking forward to this for quite some time and preparing. So yes, we were very pleased about the announcement yesterday. So Ingrid, I have a question about amenities though. Like what's going to be available, what's not? um, Will everything be open at these hotels? Well, I I suppose I, I need to say that it depends on the hotel because some hotels have many different operating departments. So that might be, you know, everything from spas or retail, uh, restaurants, lounges. And I think each hotel, depending on the demand or the amount of business they're anticipating, um, they will determine whether or not all operating departments are open or not. We're certainly encouraging uh, for the, our hotel community to communicate really clearly on their website so people No, for example, some areas in in BC pools are able to be open. And then some hotels have chosen that um, until they really get the direct detail or they're prepared, their pools might be closed. And that certainly is something that I would imagine families and our traveling public would would need to know. Um, And in addition to that, making sure that any changes to your arrival experience or your stay would be communicated in pre-arrival information just to make sure that expectations are met mm-hmm. and that there's an understanding that we're operating in, in quite different times than we were last year. Okay, so definitely ask ahead. Don't expect that everything's going to be open. Yeah, I would suggest that booking, there's two things. One is book direct with the hotel because you can speak to somebody at the hotel and make sure that what's important to you is confirmed and that conversation can be had. It also means that uh, they know uh, what your priorities are and can make sure that they do their best to, to meet your expectations. Okay, so things are definitely moving along there. Uh, are certain areas, are you already hearing from certain places that are pretty full, pretty booked up? We certainly do have some pockets around the province that um, either uh, people did not cancel their reservations that were already Uh, made earlier this year or even when they left last year, which is quite common for our resort areas. Um, And then there are certain areas that, you know, historically would have been um, filled with international travellers or long-haul travellers. And given that our borders are closed, it means that those areas are, are an amazing opportunity for us as British Columbians to discover this year. So, that yes, we have uh, some pockets where there's high demand already and uh, they're citing that there is fairly high occupancies. But, you know, truthfully, overall in the province, uh, we are seeing a significant reduction uh, in travel. And I think it's because British Columbians have been cautious about making their travel arrangements for the summer. Mm-hmm. And now that they know that we've been given the green light, I would suggest is the time to start making your bookings and making your plans. Great advice. Thank you, Ingrid. Thank you so much. Ingrid Jarrett, CEO and President of the BC Hotel Association. Call ahead is the big piece of advice there. Not everything might be open in terms of the amenities of where you want to stay, so make sure you know before you book, but definitely book. Book something. Go somewhere in BC this summer. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com.